0: e fu il calore d'un momento poi via di nuovo verso il vento davanti agli occhi ancora il sole dietro alle spalle un pescatore
1: dietro alle spalle un pescatore e la memoria è già dolore
0: Hello and welcome to episode 1003 of Effectively Wild, the baseball podcast from Fangraphs and Baseball Prospectus, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindberg of The Ringer. My incoming co-host Jeff Sullivan is on vacation, so I've been asking other people I like to fill in for him, and I'm very excited about today's guest host. I I think the two most cited podcasts in the history of Effectively Wild are Slate's sports podcast Hang Up and Listen, and Slate's daily, I don't know what to call it, current affairs podcast, The Gist. <laughs> and the link between those two shows, aside from Slate, is Mike Pesca, who co-hosts Hang Up and Listen and hosts The Gist, as well as contributing to NPR and serving as my sidekick today. So, Mike, I know that you are pretty sure that you have the happiness gene, and yes. I have, I've never heard you not say I'm well when someone asks you how you are, so I won't waste time asking you, but welcome, and I am very happy to have you on.
1: I am. I, I'm happy to be on. I was for a second. My heart was in my throat when I thought you were going to mention Welcome to Night Vale as uh, one of the favorite podcasts of the show. And I just missed that episode. So I'm glad you like my episodes. I do have to say I've been going through this thing, this virus uh, inflected thing where every joint in my body feels like it was at least a grade two sprain. And I say grade two because I don't remember if grade one or three is the worst one. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so it's this weird virus thing. So I am. I am well, but I have that. But do you ever think, I mean, this is flu season, like every time a baseball player or an athlete plays through a flu or plays through a normal non-sports you know related injury and we just don't give it any credence, It's that is what makes them superheroes. Like yeah. playing through the flu and playing through just like intestinal yeah. problems is the most amazing thing that professional athletes do.
0: Yeah, I did an article on that once for Baseball prospectus about just instances of athletes' You know, doing something heroic and then after the game, you find out that they threw up four times in the dugout while they were doing those things. Now I have a theory that maybe we don't hear about that unless they have a good game, right? So if they, if they go for four with four strikeouts, then you don't hear afterwards that, that they were sick because no one wants to use sickness as an excuse. But if you had a good game, then it makes you look even more superhuman. And, and the fact that they can ever do that does set them apart. I think doing a podcast slightly under the weather is a little less demanding
1: yeah but i went three for four against lefties but that is weird too that they you know you don't want to use sickness as an excuse why because everyone yeah. listening they've all been sick it would right. be a great excuse i always like, think why that, yeah. why'd you why'd you take that last strike looking you know i did throw up four times do they think <laughs> that the braves faithful would rise up and say no good sir
0: <laughs> yeah every sports executive says that if they have a, an injury plague season they they always say i know never want to use injuries as an excuse which is a, a way to sort of use it as an excuse without actually using it as an excuse yeah. but, but it's a good excuse a lot of yeah. the time it's, it's mean, a
1: great I think it's yeah. the word excuse like what does excuse mean an <laughs> yeah. explanation, explanation that mitigates sure. the uh, terrible circumstance it's literally <laughs> a good excuse um, I don't yeah we do have this as fans this disconnect between the actual physical pain of an athlete and some idea of like gutting it out or being the gladiator and you know as much we want to say well they're getting paid for that much we are worse when it comes to the college athletes so it's not about that it's just that sports fans become terrible <laughs>
0: right all right well i'm i'm pretty sure i have the happiness gene too but i guess if you don't have the happiness gene you wouldn't be happy to hear someone else discussing it
1: it's anandamide for your listeners if they want to know what it is <laughs> right. anandamide and do you have can we go through the checklist uh, sure do are you uh, are you rarely anxious
0: uh, never anxious almost never anxious
1: okay Do you tend to overeat, or do Mm. do you have a propensity, if unchecked, to overeat?
0: I wouldn't say so. I probably don't have that part, no.
1: Do you not enjoy the effects of marijuana?
0: I would say that, yeah, I've never really been drawn to... Any sort of drug, which I guess could be because I am uh, just naturally in a in a good frame of mind and don't feel any need to alter my mood. So yeah, so sure, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, it's marijuana specifically because the uh, anandamide is this uh, like can they found it by looking at the receptors for cannabis. So uh-huh. it's you know I don't hate it or get paranoid. I've almost never smoked it just because I'm like oh this this kind of stinks. Right. I just I got to get to my overeating. <laughs> <laughs> I got some overeating to get to. <laughs> So
0: I've I've heard every episode of the gist except the ones from this Wednesday and Thursday. I, I catch up on the weekend sometimes. So I'm gonna gush about the show a little bit later, but I do have a, a bit of banter first and. As you know, this part of the calendar is a dead zone for baseball news. There's nothing going on. And really the only interesting news today is something John Heyman reported, which is that Edwin Encarnacion, who just signed with the Cleveland Indians, has an incentive clause in his contract where he can get something like up to an extra million dollars per year depending on the Indians' attendance, which is, uh, I guess, a a good bet for him just because the Indians have had very lousy attendance the the last few years or several years, and I think they were third worst in baseball last year and coming off the World Series, you figure maybe they'd they'd get some sort of bump and he would benefit from that. But if he doesn't want to leave it to chance and he wants to ensure that the Indians have higher attendance next year and, and for every year he's with them, what can he do? Do you have any suggestions for what Edwin Encarnacion can do to bring Cleveland fans to the ballpark? Apart from you know sitting hitting seventy home runs or something, let's assume that he can't make himself better at baseball. Is there anything he can do to to juice the attendance stats by himself?
1: Is it a million dollars?
0: Yes, which to Edwin Encarnacion is is not a whole lot of money, but that's know.
1: true. But just to be, I mean, well, first of all, what I do is maybe contract this out. So, uh, I would, I would sell this right to someone else and, you know, figure that they could do whatever, uh, that'll be their incentive. So I'd X yeah. prize it. First of all, I would definitely okay. X prize it. <laughs> then if I bought it, I would pay something like $500,000 and I would maybe have a bobblehead night that you don't, you only have to give it to the first or a random 5,000. Once the word bobblehead is on a ticket, I think attendance goes up. I don't know. They have some multiple, but it's the best giveaway in baseball. Yeah. And bobbleheads aren't that Aren't that expensive to produce or mass produce? You can no. even make bobbleheads of specific fans. So I would target the nights, those midweek nights where you're not going to get a big boost anyway, and just have Encarnacion, and you don't disclose that it was actually subcontracted out, but the Encarnacion specific sponsored bobblehead night.
0: <laughs> okay, that's a good idea. I don't know what he has to hit. I don't know how much he has to increase attendance to trigger this clause, but but that could work. I like that idea. Yeah. All right, so. So, uh, if you have a hallmark as a speaker, I think it it might be your extreme willingness to break into song sometimes <laughs> despite the unwillingness of your audience but if it's not that i think it's your use of analogies and you you clearly love analogies you take your time crafting them and you don't just slip them into your normal speech you sort of announce that the analogy is coming and you clear the floor and you say i have an analogy and then you lay out all the parameters <laughs> and you you try to you know make it the best possible analogy you can do you think that baseball is the best source of analogies or has it been a a fruitful source for you
1: to the point where i think that there are some analogies in our language that we don't even know are from baseball yes for instance is his back was against the wall is that a baseball analogy or not huh what do you think the etymology of that would be from baseball well other than baseball like running out of options i mean it seems like the other times your back is against the wall is what an execution or the you know you take a turn down an alley but people literally who who are out of options and have nowhere else to go and their back is against the wall probably happens more in baseball than all other aspects of life like i mean literally uh-huh. when that's it there's nowhere else to go how often is your back against the wall i mean chase <laughs> scenes happen a lot in movies but not in real lives yeah. and in real life it's not a wall but the things that the and uh, the LAPD puts down on the highway to make the guys tire explode that usually stops them uh-huh. so i'll tell you though i worked for NPR for a long time and the reason well i like analogies cuz i like analogies and And I also think that analogies are actually how we think. We have a thought. We have another thought. Our synaptic connection is what intelligence is, but... I mean, they were so useful with NPR because I knew that a big part of the audience wasn't into sports, and I knew that some part of the audience who was listening to me for the sports context wanted to be flattered if I brought up anything related to the arts or another walk of life. So using analogies was so rewarded in NPR, I kind of got, I would say, a big fix out of it. But though with the gist, I try to avoid sports analogies, but they often are the first thing that comes to mind. There Mm -hmm. is a large portion of people that do not get the sports analogies. And you're actually making things more opaque for them when you analogize situations to sports.
0: Right. Baseball, of course, has the, the longest history and it sort of has more, I guess, penetration into the lexicon. And, you know, Brian Curtis did an article for, for Grantland once about how politics is all baseball metaphors, and it just constantly creeps into the language. And yeah. a lot of people who aren't baseball fans are at least familiar with the rules or the history enough to understand if you do use it as a framing device. So it comes in handy sometimes. Do you have a, an analogy generation strategy? Is it, does it just come to you or can you kind of purposefully build an analogy?
1: I have a Wonka-esque Oompa Loompas working in the basement. <laughs> I guess it comes to me. I kind of sometimes, I, I do sit down on occasion. It comes to me more often than it doesn't, but sometimes I will want to think of an analogy and uh, try. I guess most people in most walks of life, they don't have that need right? You know, yeah. some mm-hmm. some guys selling insurance, like, it's the analogy that's going to drive things <laughs> home. But probably people have the need more often than not. So when, during the um, election, uh, when it was the primary, and all the Bernie supporters were talking about all the states they won, and it was driving me crazy because <laughs> right. states don't count and delegates don't count, I yeah. really wanted to get the analogy right. And the analogy to baseball is pretty perfect, you yeah. know? I outscored him in the number of innings. It doesn't matter. Innings don't <laughs> count that drove it home to a lot of people
0: yeah all right and uh, a Mets question since you are a Mets fan I'm looking at the FanGraphs depth charts projections for Let's 2017 right. and so the Mets right now have the 10th best projected record but the sixth best projected record in the National League so if all of these projections played out perfectly they would finish one game out of the wild card slot and I don't know what to make of the Mets. I think entering this winter, they were sort of the team with the, the biggest error bars or the most variants. It, it could go either way. Really, that's still the case and will continue to be the case as long as they are dependent on young pitching. And if you click through and you look at the depth charts, the pitching staff section is – it's like a forest of crosses. It's like a yes. it's like one of those terrible turns on a highway or something where a bunch of people died and you, you put crosses up. It looks like that. When you think of them, do you think of them as a potential great team, which they could be, or a potential disaster, which they could be? Or do you think of them as probably something in the middle, just an 84 win, maybe wildcard team, which is what the projections say?
1: Well, it's all riding on the acumen of Terry Collins. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then the weird thing about those uh, bars, which has the iconography of the Swiss flag, is because of Fangraph's branding, they're all green crosses. Yes. <laughs> which should mean like their health is pretty good, but that's just how they use... <laughs> The crosses yeah. and the crosses here are the starting pitching. Matt's shoulder day to day, Harvey shoulder day to day, Gesselman shoulder day to day, Wheeler breaking the trend, elbow day-to-day. <laughs> well if, if they're day to day now <laughs> and it's and it's January, you right. know, that should be good. I think they'll be I think that I think they'll be very good because first of all, Syndergaard and DeGrom don't have a green cross next to them. <laughs> <laughs> but I've just listed I've just listed four of whatever the 20 best pitchers potentially. All right, not Gesselman, but I've just listed three of the potential best 15 pitchers in the National League. I mean, yeah. when you have that starting pitching, it's amazing. They've shown an ability to get something out of their pen. And I think their offense is, you know, Travis Darno was hurt so much of last year. Will he be this year? Duda was out so much of last year. They had a lot of guys who were out last year and you don't Project them Walker by the end. So, given all that, even if their injuries they had terrible injury luck last year, if it more than evens out, I think they'll be a pretty good team. Yeah, uh, everyone makes the playoffs too, which and is
0: nice. Even Syndergaard and DeGrom had green crosses at points during the season. Yes. There's no one who has not had a green cross they, <laughs> at that, some that point. That
1: was their green cross to bear, yeah, <laughs> except Familia, who should have for overuse. <laughs> Right. Why did they, why did they keep him?
0: I don't know. It would, it, it would be nice though if we got to see one year where everything clicks just because the, the super rotation is always such a enticing prospect and it, it never really pans out. Whenever it you never start a season with, you know, four or five yeah. aces or something, inevitably a couple of them get hurt and one of them is not as good as he's been before. And it ends mm. up being a decent rotation, but nothing special, nothing historic. And there's clearly potential here for historic, but based on what we've seen so far and how everyone in this rotation has had Tommy John surgery just about. It's not something that you can count on, which made it smart. I think that Alderson stockpiled pitchers a couple years ago when everyone was saying he should trade them for outfielders or bats, and he ended up really needing every arm the last couple years. But it could completely go either way. I I have no way to forecast whether they will hit the, the high end or the low end of their projections.
1: Yeah, they made – with that that MASH unit, they did make the playoffs last year. Granted, a one-game playoff against Madison Bumgarner is essentially like not making the playoffs, but I I think they – overperformed i think they i think getting cespedes back is a great signing i think what the braves are doing though they're like the ex-mets team i'm considering <laughs> it is weird logically the team that every mets fan should like second most are the braves with r.a dickey and bartolo Colon. right you know the two most popular mets pitchers of the last five or six years and the most highly lauded, one in terms of Cy Young's and one in terms of gifts. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Right. laughs> I'm much By the way, I'm, my, my love of both those guys, the Dicky love is, as far as fandom goes, totally rational because he has interests like I do and I've interviewed him and he's a lovely guy and a thoughtful guy and his memoir is absolutely one of the best sports memoirs, I think might be the best sports memoir of an active player that I've ever read. I've read Better Sports memoirs, but they're usually looking back on a long and storied career. And Dickies was in the middle of a good but weird career, and it was just so well written. Whereas the Cologne love is entirely irrational and stuff that, as you guys have talked about the show, kind of because I like the jolly fat guy, and that's almost demeaning. Mm -hmm. No, that clearly is demeaning to Bartolo (laughs) Cologne. (laughs) And like him being a bad hitter is just this accident of a bizarre rule that like what if what if Peyton Manning were the worst field goal kicker we wouldn't know it because he's <laughs> never had to kick a field goal so both those guys on the Braves are pr- pretty interesting
0: yeah all right well unless you have other pressing baseball matters on your mind on January 6th and we did <laughs> <laughs> we did get some uh, some Cracker Jack meditations out of the way before we officially started the show so I'll, I'll stick those on the other end of the episode as a as a slate plus so Sort of segment I guess and uh, <laughs>
1: For free, you don't have to subscribe for 40 <laughs> sure, bucks or whatever sure. it is these days <laughs> uh,
0: I will transition to the gist and to, to covering sports versus covering news and current events and I'll I'll still try to tie it tenuously to baseball but I had Carson Sestouli on the last episode and he was saying that what attracted him to baseball stats and sabermetrics wasn't only the subject matter but also the mindset or the way of looking at the world which if you go by the Bill James definition is a search for some sort of objective knowledge. And I think of the gist as sort of a a sabermetric show. And I don't mean that you do much math, although you you have done math on occasion when when figuring out which states have the fewest people per electoral vote or (laughs) maybe uh, fact checking Donald Trump's tweets. But but you don't rely when you can avoid it on opinion or supposition. You, you try to consult the literature, or the, the research. You have a recurring segment called, is that bullshit? And I mean, just the example you were citing early on about the Bernie Sanders support just a few minutes ago is kind of an example of that. And I think for me, baseball and sabermetrics formed my way of thinking so that I now look at other subjects that way. But how did you come to? To look at the world in that way,
1: I do uh, naturally, and that's the answer for you too, right? It's not like you believed in myths and then someone turned you on to statistics. Like uh, right. you have a mindset. Carson has that mindset. You might not know but pre-Bill James people who craved uh, empirical knowledge might not have known it, but it has to be there in you. And the first. Place that I loved, I always loved politics and I always loved sports. And I think I probably got into the Bill Jamesian part of sports late. In fact, baseball was my third favorite sport for much of my life. And looking back, I think it's because football always seemed to be more stat heavy and stat reliant and stat embracing. And same with basketball. There were just more stats. There was something about baseball, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, especially with, you know, uh, Whitey Herzog small ball that didn't appeal to me and maybe it's because that's not the best way to run a baseball team but it, it showed up I was a um, right when I graduated college I taught for the Princeton Review and I taught SATs and I taught GMATs but my favorite thing was teaching the LSATs because there is this section just essentially the, the entire section it's like half the LSAT is playing is that bullshit you get a statement and you try to find ways why it is bu- they ask the question in different ways like if if true would strengthen the statement or what is lacking in this statement or which of the following are irrelevant to the statement. But all you're really doing is playing is that bullshit with every one of the statements before you. And it reminds me of that part in uh, my brother Vinny, where uh, Ralph Macchio is saying how great Vinny was, that he was always standing up and calling out the magician. Uh, no, the rabbit's over there. I just have that natural predilection that I read any statement and I kind of want to test it like Bill James. I mean, isn't that his whole modus operandi to say, Uh you know, is this true? How is this true? How do we know that that's true? And I'm naturally doing that with everything.
0: But it's harder to apply the same sort of rigor to non-sports subjects or certain non-sports subjects, especially compared to baseball, where everything is play indexable. So how do you carry that over to topics where you can't look up a complete record of everything that's ever happened? And there often aren't really solid answers that you can point to.
1: Right. And uh, the other thing is even, you know, as, as Nate Silver and his 538 and that trend tries to apply it, elections happen presidentially once every four years, senatorially once every six years. It's a horrible sample size. Yes. S- same as football. So I try to be honest with myself and I try to say, you know, I always ask, why do I believe these things? Because I really, maybe this is part of it for the people like us who like statistics. Like we really want to be right. <laughs> you know, but we we want to be right, not just because we tell ourselves we're right, we're right, or there's a story or a narrative about being right, like it just i don't know it feels really tenuous when we're only guessing that we're right, and we have a good amount of evidence we say to ourselves, "Oh, I'm right for a reason, so I'm thinking about there's this uh, tension now for people who oppose trump. what's the right thing to do to just stand athwart Trumpism and say no and try to object to him all the time or to You know, if you're a politician, if you're Charles Schumer or something, work with them and try to do what you can to take what he and those of his ilk put on the table to try to work for America. And I'm really conflicted. I don't know the answers. So I've been trying. So there's no stat that will give me the answer. But knowing that I'm conflicted and trying to figure this out, I just see what evidence is out there. And there's Bernie Sanders standing athwart Trump, you know, mocking him with uh meme ready blow-ups of his Twitter feed in the Senate. But then Martin Indyk, who is a former peace negotiator for Israel, he took the Trump idea of let's put the uh let's put the This is stuff you always talk about on Effectively Wild. But let's go to East (laughs) Jerusalem and let's put the embassy there. He said, well, here's a way that we could pivot off of that and it might help the peace process. And I said to myself, what Martin Indyk is doing is so impressive to me. It's so patriotic. Like he, he knows Trump's a buffoon. He knows that everything he's doing is contrary to the efforts of peace. And he's just trying to take that because he cares more about peace in Israel than working with Trump. Anyway... If I had settled that in my mind, I might have been closed off to the Indic. I might have been kind of arguing with it as it went along. I just felt that I was more open to both arguments. And I'm still open to seeing what is the best argument, you know, getting more inputs. It's not a number and it's only one or two things, but just this openness to stimuli and then trying to make my conclusions based on the evidence, which is kind of opposite the way stats were in baseball pre-Bill James.
0: Mm-hmm. And like a lot of people in the media, you did some soul searching in the week or so after the election, and you know you had had the the Trump anxiety hotline where you would yeah. cite the projections and the polls and the numbers, and I think based on what we knew at the time, reasonably say that the election was going to go the other way, and so it didn't shake your your faith in the approach or the, the scientific method as a mindset, right? I mean, it, it kind of made you, I guess, more appreciative of the uncertainty and how uh, something that is not the most likely outcome is still a possible outcome and, and that sort of thing. And, and maybe just like the methodological problems that you can try to correct and make the numbers more accurate. But I think a lot of people kind of said, well, wow, we, we can't know anything anymore and we can't trust stats. And you never had that deep a, a crisis of, of confidence. I assume. No,
1: no, because that's not true. I mean, Nate, you know, 538, their best projection always said something like not always, but by the end said something like two out of three chances, sixty-five, thirty-five. Right. And so most people will say, well, that was closer than anyone else on. Trump's chances of winning, how do we know he wasn't 100% right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there is this existential question of what does that mean he has a 65% chance of winning? It's not like a batter that will spray a ball somewhere, like people are going to come out to vote. So half of that projection is, you know, there's a certain chance that the polls are getting it right. And half of that projection is knowing every other election and seeing, you know, what are the chances that the polls were wrong? And let's not get into the fact that the electoral vote versus the national vote, because Nate's model took care of that. But it's the weird thing that Nate I mean, I guess the people who look at this will say, the people who are really invested in this, not the people who say, oh, you can't trust stats, will say, Nate got it less wrong than everyone else, but there is a good chance that he got it totally right, That's <laughs> uh-huh. 65% ... And how will we ever know? So no, it didn't shake my faith. What I said on my show and the Trump anxiety hotline was telling people that Trump is the best nominee if you want a Democratic-controlled Senate. The analogy I made was, if you understand this, if you're a poker player, you're sitting with really good cards. You're sitting with a hand that you think is going to win 80 something percent of the time so we're not going to make the analogy that it's a dead solid certainty because there's no thought there what you want to do is push all your chips in in fact you're really eager when you have this hand that you think is dominating your opponent you know even even a hand that let's say you saw the other guy's cards and you know on the last card he has four outs right and so you know you're a 90 percent favorite you push all your chips in. And that was the analogy I was making. Like, the Democrats, it's not certain, but you should be really happy it's going this way and we're pushing all our chips in. Now, I, I think people who play poker understand that there can be that bad beat. Maybe, I guess, in politics, we're not saying Hillary Clinton got a bad beat. We're saying Hillary Clinton didn't campaign in Michigan and, and Wisconsin. And that's all true. But I still think the analogy, analogy, I still think <laughs> it obtains, you know, mm-hmm. and I I. I Did a little soul searching and I said, I think the way I express it's very hard to express the difference between 90% certainty and 60% certainty. So I wanted to spend more time expressing kind of doubt where I was still really thinking that something would happen and I wound up being wrong, but kind of couching it in something less than I'm really, really, really certain. Trying to express, I'm fairly certain. It's Mm -hmm. very hard to do those gradations of degrees. But yeah, I learned a little bit about. I mean, I I went back and I listened to all the Trump anxiety hotlines. I learned a little bit about, you know, how I expressed certainty. And uh, I was I was humbled by my if, if listeners said, I thought you misled me. But many, many more listeners said, hey, you weren't the only one that was wrong. And you offered good, tangible insights along the way. If the overall meta projection was wrong, that mostly isn't your fault.
0: Mm-hmm. and i also think of the gist as an optimistic show or maybe you as a, an optimistic person and i don't mean blindly optimistic but i think rationally optimistic and you you usually try to take the long view so that if someone says for instance that the country has never been more divided you know you you might point out that hey we're not all that far removed from an actual civil war the the country was literally divided so relative to that we're we're doing pretty well and it's easier to see that progress if you kind of have that perspective and you're not necessarily comparing to last year or five years ago but maybe 150 years ago and that is something that I think I also got oddly enough from baseball I was a a history minor and I guess that's one of the reasons why you minor or major in history is to get an appreciation for things that have happened before so that you can recognize them when they happen again and be able to compare and contrast. But I think what really drove that home for me was a, a class I mentioned on the show before about baseball and American history. And we went back to a lot of primary sources, baseball writers in the 19th century. And it was just so obvious that people were saying the same things then that they say now and making the same complaint and sounding the same alarms and players are making too much money you know the same the same things but updated a little bit and so that is a a quality that That I think you you recognize, too, and you're able to kind of make that connection. And maybe that has to do with the lack of anxiety so that you are uh, more able to maintain a level head about these things. But where do you think you got that quality from? Or maybe that's just another sort of innate thing.
1: I think it's probably innate. But I think knowing knowing stuff. I also am a knower more than a feeler which, Uh uh, you know, my girlfriend says I could work on. But (laughs) I'm empirically driven. During the Great Depression, the unemployment rate in 1933 was almost 25%. It's now Mm -hmm. 4.9%. So if you think things are bad, they're not bad. I mean, unemployment compared to the rest of the world is not bad. Since 1991, which was a time that I very much remember, I was in college, cancer rates have dropped by 20, or cancer deaths have dropped by 25%. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like an unbelievable number of people walking the earth who wouldn't be otherwise and plus I live in New York City. I totally remember what murder was like back then. Thousands of people being murdered this year was I think 333. Now murder went up in Chicago, but it went down. It's at it's tied or one off from an all-time low in New York. And if you look at the rates of all this bad stuff in the world like war famine pestilence all the all the horsemen the horsemen are abating and like not to know that is i don't know childish or to live on anecdote or to live by how you feel or feel what other people feel rather than the actual facts of things mm-hmm. and while all of that knowing that stuff makes me optimistic the pessimistic part is actual progress might not be rewarded Uh, Politically, you might vote against the guy who didn't deliver progress, even when he really did deliver progress, or some argument of, well, we don't feel like it's progress. I mean, if you could thwart actual tangible benefits by just an argument and an appeal to emotion, you always can. You've always been able to. But when that is an effective enough political tool that that's what you need to get into office, look, a lot of other things happened in this election. But I do think we're entering this age of anecdote and where we could just discount all this tangible progress that people should feel. It would be one thing if there was this great comeuppance to the established political order as we were in the middle of the Great Depression, you know, that would make sense. But now in 2016, when things are trending pretty good, when, yeah, some class of people is worse off than they were or feels worse off than they were, they, though they aren't really from 20 years ago. I don't know. It's just such an odd time to have a revolution when things are going pretty well.
0: Yeah. And you, you talk about this all the time in terms of violence, whether it is uh, worldwide, whether it's the the number of wars going on at any one time, or whether it's domestic murder rates. And those yeah. things all have improved relative to basically any other point in human history. And it just seems like it's a really hard thing to avoid. Like, I'm half Jewish, my dad is responsible for the Jewish half, and he's a Jew who was alive during World War Two. So, you know, you would think that he would have a, a pretty good appreciation for the fact that things could be better but they are getting better and yet he tells me all the time you know i'm i'm worried about the the world that you're inheriting and things are are scarier now than they used to be and i mean i can't think of a, a scarier time than the one he was born into but yeah. it just seems like it's really difficult to maintain that perspective and kind of get above the the day-to-day fretting about whatever the current crisis is.
1: We are anandamide-inflected half-Jews. I guess it's the (laughs) other half. What's your other half, Swedish?
0: Catholic, uh, yeah, German, Hungarian, Irish.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I got Catholic, Italian. I guess, though the Catholics aren't known to be a guiltless people, (laughs) compared to our Jewish halves, they are. So the best book I ever, the best nonfiction book I ever read on this and possibly anything, do you know Greg Easterbrook's The Progress Paradox? Yes. Uh-huh. How life gets better while people feel worse. I yeah. mean, that's just it. Forget the book. Listen to the subtitle. But it's <laughs> true. It's so true. I guess the feeling matters. I do suspect, I I might have a big theory on this, but I definitely have these suspicions that the big change is social media, the changes in anything actual or tangible or -hmm. things like murder rates or life expectancies. The big change is what social media has done. And it kind of makes sense as animals, we have to be aware of stimulus in our environment. So it, it was an adaptive strategy all these years to be really cautious about something that seemed dangerous. Well, What would happen if I made a machine where you could be exposed to all the dangers of the world? And in fact, the dangers would rise to the top of your list. You'd be almost paralyzed. (laughs) And that's kind of what happened. It doesn't really matter if good things are going on. We feel so much, so paralyzed by the bad things, like the war in Syria. That's terrible. If you're in Syria, it's Mm -hmm. bad. If you're in Germany, if you're in the United States, it's almost nothing. It's a potential, potential hardship.
0: I guess unless you're just extremely empathetic, which maybe maybe I'm not empathetic enough. Maybe that's part of the problem.
1: Yeah, well, maybe I think that probably has something to do with I'm a, I'm a thinker rather than a feeler. Like if uh-huh. I was overly, I just read this thing against empathy. I think sympathy might be better than empathy. If you're always putting yourself in someone's position, well, I guess the, uh, the argument of this thesis was that sympathy is better because empathy is more easily manipulable and there are certain people we identify with and certain people we don't and we tend to identify with like people and so it's just better to be sympathetic with people that you don't have a lot in common with if if you're going to be empathetic with people you have in common with then you're only helping in groups stuff like that Mm -hmm. I think it's just better to know than to feel I hate feeling
0: (laughs) (laughs) so now that we have covered the human condition and the course of history I want to just ask you a couple quick podcasting questions because for years i did the show every weekday and if you count my ringer podcast i still do a podcast daily if not a daily podcast so i feel a a certain solidarity for other podcasters who do daily shows and maybe this is too inside podcasting for some people but i am always curious about the methods and and what a day in the life of the gist looks like how how big a buffer of pre-recorded Content do you have if you if you do get sick and you have to go on the d l are you constantly scrambling for guests i mean what does the the typical day look like?
1: Six only happened twice and i've uh I think I took off once. So I'll Uh do kind of a a mini show from home. I can record from home. So can you. Yes. So I'd record from home and throw it in there and say, sorry, I don't have a long spiel, which is my thing at the end of the show. But here's an interview anyway. Um, And one time I did the full show while sick and I listened to it and I was deranged. I was really, (laughs) it was not right. I don't. I envy you guys. I love your podcast, but it's great to be driven by the news of the day. But you also, especially on a January sixth or eighth type date, you have to, um, you know, you have to go and generate your own angles and your own news. And so that's what I'm always having to do. Mm-hmm. So I have this list of just ideas, riffs on a news article. The small ones become the stuff in the beginning of the show. The big ones become the stuff at the end. I don't know if you know this, Ben. We've labeled our segments the P, the Q, the R, and the S. This was <laughs> when the Q and the R, we used to have two interview shows. Now it's mostly a Q. So the P, that's the first. Um, and the reason we do that is because every show in the world has an A segment, a B segment, a C segment, and a D segment. So we just went with P, Q, R, and S. Mm-hmm. But the S stands for the spiel. The P stands for Pesca. The Q stands for a Q and a So it also works <laughs> out. Uh-huh. The small stuff goes in the P, like a little observation or something about three minutes in length. The spiel is longer, maybe with clips, more developed. And it just depends on like how meaty it is, how much, like if it's a fun trifle, I'll deal with it in the P. If it's a fun trifle, I'll need to think of two or three other ones to make a theme of it in the the spiel. But I'm always writing things down and I'm always kind of imbibing news. And we record interviews during the day, uh, one or two a day. And then we stockpile them, and Chris and Mary, my producers, cut them up. And that's one of the secrets not a secret. We don't keep it secret. But that's why the show's palatable, because a 25-minute interview, even if you th- think it went really well, it's just much better as a 15-minute interview. Just taking out the worst answer of every interview helps the interview immeasurably. Can't believe I'm giving away my secrets.
0: You can tell me at the end what, what parts of this I should take out.
1: Yeah. It's the part where I uh, mislabeled the spiel as the P. Otherwise, it's all... And definitely keep Cracker Jack. And... So, so with the bank of uh, interviews we've done, with the methods of uh, thinking all the time, I usually go into the studio and record all my continuity, which is all the, the spiel and everything I say in between segments in one fell swoop. All, it's mostly written down. Sometimes it's bullet pointed. I stop and start and Chris and Mary make it sound really smooth. And, you know, that's the show. Somehow it's been possible.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the two interview thing. When we started this podcast, we, we did two topics a day and we yeah. very quickly figured out that that was not a, a sustainable strategy or at least not one we could sustain while staying sane. So we, uh, we cut it down a bit. But, uh, you have, you've managed to avoid the length inflation that we have had. I think we, uh, we originally planned to make this show just a, a very digestible, you know, 15 minutes and you'd pop it on and it would be over. And then gradually we just had a kind of mission creep and it got longer and more involved every time, but you've held the line on the gist pretty well. You, you rarely get longer than half an hour or so.
1: Yes. The original name of the show was 20-ish minutes. (laughs) And uh, if only we could have stuck to that. But yeah, over 30. It's not fan friendly.
0: Yeah. So last question. You are great at ad-libbing and just kind of doing podcast improv, but you always sound well-prepared at least, and you talk to people from all walks of life, and you always sound as if you know the subject matter as well as they do. Maybe you're just great at digesting Wikipedia articles right before you talk to them. I don't know what your method is, but... I found that to be a challenge. I used to write for a baseball exclusive site and then I moved to Grantland and The Ringer and now I write about all kinds of topics and TV and video games and even the election a few times. And every time I do that, I feel, uh, you know, at times a little bit out of my depth or I feel a little more uncertainty about what I'm talking about than I would if I were citing someone's WRC plus or whatever. So how do you? kind of give yourself a grounding in enough subjects to be able to talk about things without warning necessarily. You you might not even know what your next gist is going to be about depending on the news, and yet you still have to respond to it and cover it. So how do you do that?
1: I just, well, I naturally have a, a lot of interest and I am eclectic in my tastes, but you know, the answer might be since you are an expert, you are an actual baseball expert and you are relied upon for your expertise within the baseball circle. So, you know, maybe you compare the other subject areas to that and that you're lacking in expertise with this other stuff. Uh-huh. But since I've always been a generalist and even when I was a sports reporter, I was the sports reporter for NPR. So, it meant all sports. So, I never could get into in in I would say I have never, I had never on NPR, and, and I will do the thing, I mean, I'll try to cite some really interesting stats, definitely vorp because I like the way that sounds, but I'll always have to explain it. But I I would say I've never got in-depth on my most in-depth NPR report as you did in like your lowest third baseball perspective stuff. So it's Uh probably that you're comparing yourself. So when you're asked to write about politics, you're like, oh my God, compared to my baseball knowledge, Uh I know nothing. But compared to your politics knowledge, you're probably fine for the task at hand.
0: Yeah. Well, part of my preparation is just listening to the gist. I can just (laughs) crib from your preparation for my own. So I think you have probably sent more listeners to my podcast than I have sent to yours, but maybe we can change that today. I hope that everyone listening, if you are not, already a gist listener i know that many people found us through your mentions of effectively wild on the gist or hang up and listen but if you're not listening to those shows you really should be they are just a joy and they will make you smarter and they will entertain you and you can find them at slate or wherever you find podcasts you can also find mike on twitter at pesca Me or pesca m i and Mike, thanks a lot. This was uh, a pleasure. I, I just heard Ralph Nader call you a few days ago a, a top five interviewer of the last 50 years, so it was a, top little, five.
1: <laughs> a little intimidating
0: to interview you, but I guess the, the lack of anxiety came in handy again.
1: Yeah, and you are operating without the knowledge that you, through a series of events, probably got us into the war in Iraq, so that's good. <laughs> you have that on Nader.
0: <laughs> All right. Great talking to you, Mike. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome. That was awesome. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash wild. Today's five listeners who have already pledged their support, Kevin Reed, Andrew Thompson, Ian Leidner, Brian Hayworth. And Patrick Garza, thank you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. We have now passed the 5,000-member milestone. Very satisfying multiple of five. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. You can contact us via email at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or by messaging us through Patreon. Jeff Sullivan will be back in the country a week from now, so we have two or three more shows to go until he gets back and a couple of good guests lined up. So have a wonderful weekend, and I will talk to you next week. Carry that heavy load really thought it would matter. Farcicle hair appears.
1: So blind side Clean the
0: slate. So the next voice you hear will
1: be Mike Pesca. I know it will. Mike, you're on with Ben. I don't know what the big deal about Cracker Jack is. Did you ever go and buy a pack of Cracker Jack? I just wanted to make it so that the next voice you heard wasn't mine, but Harry (laughs) Carey's. That was my only intention. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know he was talking about... See, he says Cracker Jacks. It should be Cracker Jack, obviously. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah, no no one okay. does that though. I don't know what the yeah. the percentage of cracker jack versus cracker jacks is in the the population at large, but
1: well, I don't know if you know this, but um my first ever award in uh, journalism was a uh, Morrow award for best sports casting based on a piece I did for that redoubt of sports casting. On the media, uh-huh. where I reported on the value of the Cracker Jack mention in "Take Me Out to the Ball Game," <laughs> and I compared it to the few metrics, but I said it's it's you know at least as valuable as having a Cracker Jack ad on every Major League ballpark, right? Yeah, and that alone meant that it was worth I don't know at the time over a hundred million dollars. <laughs> I mean that is the greatest product placement in the history of product placement. Is there any other context in which people eat Cracker Jack? besides the old ball game, yeah, just like just the small percentage of people who have no other way to get an 11 cent prize from China (laughs) who just can't figure out. It's either that or Burger King extra value meals, but they don't want their prizes too explicitly tied in with the latest blockbuster. (laughs) (laughs) They want like a weird googly eye guy where sometimes you could get the eyeballs and the eye sockets and call it a day.
0: (laughs) We're wasting all this good Cracker Jack banter.
1: Well, we weren't rolling on Cracker Jack. Let's use it. Yeah, sure.
0: I'm recording. Sure. Okay. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) That was Cracker Jack, Cracker Jack banter.